Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. In this episode of Teams at Work, we've sat down with Kieran Flanagan. If you're into growth or marketing, you probably know Kieran. He's the Senior VP of Marketing at HubSpot, But not only is he that, he also advises and invests in startups. He is a scout for the Sequoia program, and he also hosts his own podcast, the Growth TLDR. Basically, if you learn anything about marketing at any given moment of time, you come across Kieran, which is why it was a huge pleasure to chat with him about not only how to build high-performance teams, but also how to scale them over time, as he did at HubSpot. You learn the difference between a good leader and a good manager and the ingredients for being both, but also his own journey a little bit and whether he considers himself a manager or a leader of both. You also learn how everyone can learn from product managers and how to actually identify problems and motivating your team to solve them. We also speak about three types of roles that he observed startups and companies need as they grow and scale, builders, creators, and operators. And overall, this is such a well-rounded conversation that I'm really, really excited for you to listen to it and let us know if you have any feedback and have fun. Hey, everyone. I'm here today with Kieran Flanagan from HubSpot. Hey, Kieran. Hey, Daria, thanks for having me. Super cool that you came on. I'm really excited to have the chat here with you. And for those that know this podcast, yes, you do miss one more person, Anthony, who's my co-founder and my co-host, and we have so much fun doing this together. However, he has very important things to do. He just recently got married, actually, and so he's traveling the world for a few days at least. So I am uh, bummed, but also very happy at the same time. So it's Kieran and me for today. And jumping right in, Kieran, you obviously have a very long-standing career leading marketing teams and other teams previously at HubSpot. I am super hyped to hear from you what you actually think being a leader means. So what does being a leader mean to you? Yeah, so I think you can be a really great leader and a really bad manager, and you can be a really good manager and a really bad leader. And I think people usually think that a leader is a manager, and it really is not. And so for me, the differentiation is... A leader is someone that has clear purpose and mission, and people follow that person because they believe they are the best person to bring that to fruition, right? So they have a clear purpose, they have a clear mission, and they really have the skills to bring that to life. And people follow them because they they truly believe that thing as well. They're like, oh, I truly believe this thing, and this is the person to make that happen, and I want to actually follow that person to the end. I think managers are really good at things like team alignment, processes, systems, how do I do career development? Like, how do I do all of the operating things to make a team efficient? Doesn't mean they're a great, have to be a great leader. Doesn't mean they need to be a great leader or, and many managers, you know, may not be a great leader. They don't have to be, 
So I think there's a real difference between leadership and management because I think people think a leader has to manage a team. Mm-hmm. Like they actually have to be functionally managing a team. They really do not. You can have a great leader within your company and they can manage zero people. And so that's, to me, I think the difference between kind of leadership and management. Interesting. I mean, we hear this often and I think our understanding definitely aligns with the fact that you don't have to be a manager to be a leader. Many leadership behaviors are shown in situations from team members, right? Like, and we actually kind of double down on that a bunch and like really encourage everyone to step up when you see an opportunity, like just because someone is a manager doesn't mean that they're like perfect and then they'll have all the solutions. And there's a lot of opportunity and gaps also to step in and actually kind of lead through situations and so on. What was surprising about your answer is that you think that you can be a good manager without being a leader. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Do you, don't you think like um, managers would, or like the teams of managers would benefit if they had a clear sense of mission and purpose? Yeah, but does the manager have to give them the sense of mission and purpose? Cause it may be coming from the overall company or the overall team. Like they could be a sub team within the overall team. And so the overall group has a mission and purpose and the manager's job is just to make sure that they create an efficient team. And an efficient team means they have like great, you know, they have clear goals, they have clear accountability, they have career development plans, they have a clear meeting structure, they have clarity of like, how do I do the things I need to do? And how can you unblock those things and make sure that I can do my work? And I think that's somewhat different from leadership, right? That's somewhat different from leadership. It's actually how do I manage and create an efficient environment for people to do great work? Leaders can be chaotic, like truly great leaders can be chaotic and not truly organized and do not want to have to manage people. And I think it's really hard to say that every manager within the company, let's say you're in, how many managers are there in like the world, like millions and are they all great leaders? No. And do they need to be? No, they don't need to be. I don't think as a manager, you have to be a great leader to be really good at your job. That's like a super interesting counterintuitive perspective, I think. So I'd love to maybe continue that on Twitter one day or so and collect a few more perspectives. I'm sure I'm sure it's really like really interesting um, topic to dig into. And it, the reason why I was kind of following up on this is because our value propositions obviously become a better leader in two minutes a day. And so many people in management positions obviously aspire to be better leaders. And so I would love to, to just dig deeper on that. But maybe today... <laughs> Coming back to your journey, of course, and your leadership journey as well. First question maybe is, do you actually consider yourself a leader? Or like, have you been considered by others, like your team and others as a leader? You know, I'm Irish, so it's really hard to answer questions where we have to kind of talk positively about ourselves. It's just not naturally within our... So would I consider myself a leader? I would say that I'm more akin to try to do the things that a leader does than actually be a really great manager. So I think I manage and I can do all of the things a manager needs to do. I've managed hundreds of marketers, but to be a truly great manager, like the operational work that you need to do, like the systems and processes and things like you need to have those. I do that. It's not the thing that I truly love and enjoy doing. Like I'm an operator because I need to be an operator to continue to do the things I need to do within my role. What I'm really passionate about is finding really hard problems and trying to sell people on the reasons to solve those problems. That's truly what I enjoy doing. And my career at HubSpot has been trying to pick problems and kind of rally groups and teams and the company around solving these problems and the reason to solve those problems, like true missions, why we would want to solve those problems. So am I a good leader? I'm unsure, but I gravitate towards doing the things that a leader does. But I do the things that managers do because I have large groups and you have to learn how to be a great operator. And we, I know we're going to get into the kind of yeah. how to think about that. Thank you so much for answering it. So can I appreciate it. I know it's not an easy question. And when 
sometimes people ask me some more things. I'm always kind of, I never know what to say, but I think it's really interesting to hear like what your perspective on it is. So I'm really grateful you, you were talking. Yeah. You mentioned something super interesting. I'd also love to follow up on just for the sake of our audience as well. You said your mission is to kind of like rally people behind difficult problems and like help groups of people to kind of pull through in solving them. How do you actually do that? So like, what are your pillars there? Like, what's your approach on the rallying? Yeah, you have to. Okay, so I think um, marketers can learn a lot. Like most people can learn a lot from spending time with great product managers, like great product managers, because in all roles, there's like average and great. And why is that a good thing to do? Well, I think great product managers are the best people to find problems worth solving because that's their entire job is like speaking to a group of people discovering the things that are truly problematic for them and then uh, discerning what are the problems within that kind of feedback they get that are worth solving and why they're worth solving. Like, here's a problem. Here's why it's a problem for these people. And here's the potential it unlocks if we actually solve that problem. And so I think, first of all, you need to understand how you obsess over articulating that problem. And so if you're a marketer, a lot of marketers and me as well are naturally solution focused. Like, here's a bunch of solutions and don't spend as much time articulating like why this is a problem worth solving. So I think first of all, like how you articulate the problem worth solving. The second thing is how that impacts the customers, right? Like it, which is blended into that. I think it's always a customer first story, mm-hmm. like get excited by, Hey, here's a real person. Here's what they're telling us. If we did this, look how we make a much better world for that person. And so I think it's that. And then it's understanding the motivations of the teams you want to rally around that. Like, why would they be motivated to solve that? So I have a problem. I have a clear articulation why it's worth solving. And now can I get people excited by that? Because I truly understand why they would be motivated to solve that. Like I speak to the thing that they would be most motivated by in terms of solving that. Super interesting. This is a good bridge actually to one presentation you've held at SaaS Talk, I think. And we found some transcripts about that. And uh, you said a bunch of really cool stuff in there that seemed useful. One of which was inter-team collaboration is crucial for growth. Makes perfect sense, of course. But I do want to hear more about like how do you go about setting it up and encouraging team members to collaborate within like a bigger, fast growing organization, how to make sure that they actually really, truly work together and don't get like siloed in. I'm sure there've been uh, lessons learned on your end over the, this past couple of years. Yeah, I think uh, so. some things you kind of consider is, and again, I'm kind of speaking from the perspective of a marketer. So other teams may be different in this, but in a marketing team, I think you can have a really inefficient team structure until you're about 20 to 30 people. And so you can actually still execute really well as a marketing team and having a really inefficient team structure because there's fewer goals, there's centralization of decision-making. And so the decisions are mostly made by the person who leads that team or a couple of people within that team, which is much easier than control for execution because they're all going through a small set of people. And so what happens after, there's not a lot of like mastering of internal team collaboration at that size because everyone just knows each other and knows what they're doing. And there's only a small set of goals. What happens when you get to like larger numbers, right? I joined the HubSpot marketing team when we were, I think maybe 30 or so, and now we're five something hundred, maybe maybe a little bit more. What happens when you start to go above 30 is there's like decentralized, how decisions get made becomes decentralized. And so now it goes from like a single person to that single person and their direct reports to those direct reports and their team members, right? And you have this decentralization of how t- decisions are getting made. And you have decentralization of goals. Now, all of these individual teams have their goals, which are meant to ladder up to like overall team goals, but they have kind of their own internal goals or their own team goals. And now you're in a world where, wow, it's really hard to figure out how decisions are getting made. 
every team is somewhat dependent upon other teams, right? Although I'm a team that own this goal, this other team needs to do me a favor for me to actually be successful. This team needs to do me a favor to be for me to be successful. So unclear, not clear who makes making decisions. A team of favors where all teams are somewhat relying on each other for to achieve their own goals, and it just becomes chaotic. I think to get alignment, you need to be very clear on the mission of the overall team and continue to reiterate that. The bigger you get, the more you should repeat yourself, right? And like when you start to get really large, there's no amount of repetition that's bad. Like repetition is really good. If someone tells you like you're repeating the same thing too much, that's really good. <laughs> Take that as a good sign. Good advice, yeah. Yeah, so I think um, clear mission, repetition of that mission, clarity on goals. So like here are the goals that matters and how all of the individual teams ladder up to those goals. So they're aware of how they're accountable and how they feed into that goal. And then look at the goals that you have and ask yourself, who are the teams that need to make sure that we're successful within those goals and make sure they have shared goals, like make sure they share the same goal. They have clear alignment. So they're motivated to help each other. They're not helping each other because it's a favor. They're helping each other because they're both accountable to those goals. And I think that's how you start to get better at cross-team collaboration. Now, there's also a big part of this, which is the operator part. Like how do you have structured meetings, consistency of meetings, information flowing across teams. And that's how you really set up that kind of operator first model and team efficiency, efficient processes, systems, and things like that. And do you, I mean, you've been with HubSpot, I think for quite a long time, like you've watched this like growth trajectory happen, right? And like specifically for those that are in early stage startups or founders of early stage startups, when do you think is this moment when you kind of like need to be, start become aware of operational efficiency in general? So like, when do you, should you start caring about like cadence of meetings and like how efficient you are in communication and so on. What do you think? I think you'll, you know it. What happens is that you go through these periods where everything feels broken. Like everything feels like it works. And then you're suddenly like, wow, everything starts to feel slightly broken. It's un teams are unclear what the overall goals are. Like you talk to three teams and they all have different narratives in terms of what the overall team goals are. They have different ways that they report in those goals. They don't, really know how decisions are made when there's multiple teams trying to work on something. They don't understand who the clear decision makers are. It's hard to give a real number, but there's real, there is a real feeling mm -hmm. like the things start to feel a little bit chaotic. People feel teams feel somewhat siloed. They don't have good perspective on the overall mission. They don't really understand how they ladder up to that. They don't really understand decision makers and who are the decision makers. There's a little bit chaotic in terms of how things are being reported. So I think it's something to always really be cognizant of like when operational excellence becomes a detractor versus, you know, something that accelerates your growth versus something that creates a lot of friction towards your growth. And as I said, I think there's periods of time where things will become inefficient. It's just part of growing and you have to start to rebuild of how work actually gets done. Yeah. And I mean, I think there is a few people that kind of say like, whenever you like double the size, whatever, like things begin become breaking again, because it's kind of enter like a new phase. Would you agree with that in general? Like is that your observation too? Well, I don't, like doubling five to 10, like it's, it has to be doubling. Like it's just, there's these periods of time when I reflect back that you start to feel things are broken. Like the way to get a pulse check is to continually survey your employees mm -hmm. on the things that they are having challenges with. And when it, you'll start to see like all of this starts to come up in the employee MPS, gotcha. like they start to like, oh, I have no idea to get my work done. I have no idea what's happening across other teams. I feel siloed. I feel disconnected. I think a rule of thumb is like maybe doubling when you're 30 plus people, when it doubles in size from then on, yeah, I think you could say, well, things need to be rebuilt again. But I do think you can pulse check for it within your kind of employee base to see when it becomes a true kind of hot issue for them. 
makes sense. You've hired probably hundreds of people at this time, if not thousands. I'm not going to ask how many. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't know either. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot. Probably many, exactly. Yeah. Like when you evaluate potential team members, you've said that you look at team values, core skills, and technical skills. Could you walk us a little bit through like what these three different concepts are? And also how do you actually make them like tangible and measurable? Like how do you assess these things? Yeah. So I I said that at a conference and then I've kind of changed it a little bit. So what did I say? Value, technical, what was the third one? Core skills and technical skills. Yeah. The value speaks to like, this is the one I really think I've changed my opinion on, or just that we get wrong a lot in terms of the industry. So value is like how they fit within the team. Mm-hmm. Technical skills are only applicable to some roles. Core skills are like the core skills you need to make to be successful in this role. So when you look at the average job description, it's kind of ridiculous, right? You, It's like a wish list. It's like a kid sending the list to Santa, like, please get me every single toy that has ever been made. And that's kind of your entire wish list of like what you want this person to do. Mm-hmm. What I advocate for is like, what are the core things that they need to have to be successful in this? And what are all of the things that they can learn if you hire someone with a great mindset? Technical skills is very applicable to like certain roles where you need to have like technical skills to be able to do that role. Mm-hmm. So coming back to value, you know, the interviews process is like inherently flawed, right? It's an, an inherently flawed process because the way people actually decide on who they should hire, I think is like 80%, do I think I could be friends with this person? And 20%, do I think they could do the role? And you're not trying to hire a friend. Like you're not trying to hire someone that comes over to your house and you're going to get on with. That's like historically what we've tried to, oh, like we really want to hire, like there's a certain way this team is and only a certain person can fit in with this team. That's not the way we should hire people. Like it doesn't matter if that person isn't going to be the perfect fit with like every other personality on your team. They may have a different personality. That's very good. You shouldn't have all the same personalities on your team. You're trying to figure out, can they actually be proficient in the role? Do they have a really great mindset? Are they coachable? And like, I think what people are saying that they won't say is like, are they an asshole or not? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's generally what the, you know, you're trying to get for kind of culture and team fit. Yeah. And, uh, and I think interviews are kind of, hard to do that because humans gravitate towards other humans that they actually feel are like them. And And that is the hard part about interviews. So how do you assess it actually? (laughs) Again, you have to take bias out of it. You're not trying to hire someone who you think is going to be like your best friend. So do you basically hold each other accountable? Do you have like specific roles to watch out for that? And like, Yeah. So we have, uh, what we do is, and I think other good companies do this, is we have an interview panel and we assign sections to that panel. Mm, interesting. And like we each have a part of the, whatever the core things that person needs to bring to the role for them to be successful with the role. Yeah. We each take one of those and we go deep on that thing. Got it. And so we're, taking the bias out of it, which is like, oh, I just think that this person's awesome. Like I spent time with them. I could see myself just talking to them all the time versus like, no, I had a specific thing that I need to dig in with. And we have to give clear, tangible examples of why we think that person is great. Because what you do when you hire someone that you just think is cool, you kind of just have these surface level reasons that you want to hire them. But mostly what you're hiring is like, I really get on with this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you take one part of it each and go deep and give tangible examples, you kind of start to remove the bias. And so you basically kind of scorecard it in the way. Yeah, we scorecard it. Gotcha. Okay. So if somebody reaches like a specific amount of points or whatever, like a specific level, then they are. Yeah. We have, um, let's say we have five people. We have, you know, a couple of people that if we get one no among those five, you have a hire a manager who can say, well, I'm going to go back and re-interview for the things that you 
didn't think that person could bring to the role and they can decide whether like they would change their minds there. Yeah. If there's like a pervasive, like no across multiple people, then it's just a no. Okay. Got it. This is super interesting. Thank you so much for going also a bit more into detail on that. Related to that, just recently, I think in the last episode, actually interviewed a product leader at Calm currently. And he made a really interesting claim, which basically said something like he believes that high performance are made, not hired. So it's, you know how in the tech world, we constantly hear that hiring is like ruling 90% of the success of your team in the end and so on and so on. And I can understand why that is, but I also found it super interesting that he basically said, well, if you hire for mindset and if you really understand how to hire for the mindset that you need in that particular team or in that particular company, and you don't expect people to actually fully perform before like six to nine months into the role, because that's how long it takes to like really coach, mentor them and like onboard them and make them really, really fully performant and like in the context if you basically do all of these things, you will create high performers. You don't actually need to look for them when you hire. Like, what's your stance on that? I agree with that because I think what they're getting at is there's this, you know, the kind of rule of thumb in tech is, oh, hire A plus, hire A plus people. Like, first of all, like there's any kind of like real grade where you can say, oh, this is an A plus person. Because I think, again, the interview process is inherently flawed. And then how many A plus people, you know, if you take, law of averages and you start to say, oh, well, there are real A plus people. That's probably 5% of the population of people who are looking for roles. So not everyone is going to hire A plus people. And so I think what you would be much better doing is, is obsessing over how you can build a culture to make people become A plus players, yeah. right? And so like build an A plus culture versus obsess over hiring A plus people. Now it doesn't mean you shouldn't go after the best people, but I think within that it's like, okay, was well, this person got real skills, coachable, strong mindset? And do I have the environment and the culture that are going to help them unlock those skills? To me, that is being able to come into a role, having clear goals, having clear accountability, having clear mission purpose, having the environment where you can actually have autonomy to do the work you need to do and to be able to do the work in a way where you don't have like consistent blockers, whether that's like red tape, sign off, you know, hard to navigate processes, hard to navigate systems. And so it's really trying to create that culture of how does this person come in and operate at a, at a really high level. And of course, part of that is like the support they get, like what is the support they get to coach them to become yeah, or to do a plus work. Got it. Just out of curiosity, actually, how does like onboarding in general work at HubSpot? Not like in detail, but more like how long do you consider an onboarding process and like, what's your approach there to make that successful? Yeah, in marketing, we have uh, 100-day plans. Mm -hmm. And so the 100-day plans are really to help that person be successful and feel like they're making progress on some things within that 100-day, mm -hmm. but create a very supportive environment for them to do it within. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we list out projects, like we list out the things that we want them to do within month one, month two, month three, whatever, how many months that is. And then we have a list of all of the people that can help them, they should meet with. One of the things that's really important, actually, is we shift to remote is it's much harder to navigate and meet people. And so at a yeah. hundred day plan, making it purposeful in terms of how you get to speak with people, put time on their calendars. There's a reason letting them know that everyone is open to talk to them, I think is really important. Mm. And so that's how we do it. We create individual hundred day plans for each person who joins the team. Super cool. I do want to know more about it, but I also want to move on. We have like three, four more really interesting questions. Actually, let's talk about diversity in perspective course, related to diversity in uh, terms of demographics, but let's focus on the cognitive diversity and like diversity and perspectives element. Most people, I think at this point have understood in tech, but also beyond that it is actually really helpful for team performance and it helps teams to solve problems better, for instance. 
by unlocking these kind of like different points of view and kind of seeing different gaps and flagging different things that maybe um, just one person couldn't see as well. That requires you, however, to include and actually make space for these different perspectives. And a lot of teams actually struggle with that. So I just wanted to kind of like dig a bit deeper on how do you go about making sure that people are being heard and that you actually tap into these different perspectives, specifically with different personalities, not everyone being up for big chats at all times or presenting in groups, et cetera. And at the same time, how do you balance it with the speed of decision-making? So I found that specifically from a founder perspective, often also quite challenging. Like I want to move on quickly. You don't want to make like decisions in big forums at all times, but you do want to hear everyone's take. So uh, yeah, tell me a little bit more about how you conquer that. Yeah, I think there's two things you can do to make sure that people have the opportunity to participate a little bit more efficiently. And so I think historically what's happened is you would have these meetings and you would bring together people and you would kind of brainstorm solutions and try to ship solutions within those meetings. That does not suit a lot of people. I can tell you that I, I'm good in those meetings, but I don't, I don't like being put on the spot. I like to like think about things, put things in writing. And so one of the things you can introduce is like, you know, it's made, made very popular by Amazon, but is memos. I think memos are a really great way to facilitate discussion And so someone can actually put across a core point of view, there's a structure to the memo, and then you sent that to the people where they can actually be thoughtful about adding feedback. And the meeting is used to discuss the finer points that are brought up through the discussion within the memo. And the second point I think you can do to make sure that those people, even within those meetings, still have an opportunity to voice their thoughts. Because even if I've participated in the memo and now I'm in a meeting where I have to give feedback live, maybe that just isn't what I like to do. I think good managers are facilitators for the most part within those meetings. And so they're not trying to continually add their point of view and add their thoughts and tell people how they should think about things. Instead, they're just acting as a facilitator, making sure that everyone has an opportunity to voice their opinion, to voice their thoughts. Like, hey, you mentioned this within the memo. Would you want to just give us some more details? Like tease that out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I think there are two ways that you can make sure that there's better engagement of team and make sure there's better participation from the team. Yeah, I mean, it's super good, super good advice. And I think the the memo example makes perfect sense. I've also read a lot about it. We kind of utilize it for to a degree, but definitely could do more off. And uh, hopefully it's inspiring for everyone else too. Kind of on the topic of like different perspectives and different roles that people take in teams, referencing another tweet of yours was actually just recent, I think, where you spoke about what makes a great marketer and that that's actually the wrong question because there is not the marketer. Right. And that in particular, like the advice to founders, I think was you need to hire for different types of marketers, like builders, creators, operators. And we've heard a little bit from you already on the operating part, but it would be really great to hear a bit more, like how do you differentiate these roles? And also, if you have any thoughts around like what stage of company are, which, which ones are more important in, and even as far as if I'm a young marketer or someone who's actually just in the first like 30% of my career or whatever, and I'm kind of still trying to understand where am I the most impactful, how do I actually know whether I'm a builder or an operator or a creator? Yeah. So I think marketing teams are broken into three core components. And when I say those components, you can have one person that does all these things. It's just where that person excels at. And I think that's the part that's really important because you start to look at your team like, oh, I have an operator who's a builder. I have a builder who's trying to be an operator. And so what do I mean by that? Well, marketing teams are basically builders who are really great at building an audience, wherever that may be. They're like really good at figuring out how do I get true scale through these digital channels or offline or online. 
and build real audience for my brand and build real momentum behind my business and product and service. Creators are the people who are truly great at telling your story, whether that's your brand story or product marketing story, whatever it may be. They're kind of, they have really great editorial taste. They're great tastemakers. They can tell an aspirational story. They can tell a functional story. And then you have operators who are really great at making all of this work, right? They align teams, they align systems, align processes. They're very strategic and they're able to kind of make sure there's momentum behind these large, behind these kind of goals, right? Making sure people are aligned everything's in place to be able to do that. And so, as I said, like most builders and creators at some point within their career, if they're doing really well, will manage a team and have to become good at operators because now they manage a team. Yeah. And I think my point is you want to make sure that you have a structure to understand where are your builders, creators, and operators, how much of their time is being spent in kind of operating mode. Or are you asking someone who's really, like I've seen this, are you asking someone who's a really truly great operator and you're asking them to be actually the what you creator or give them a builder as a creator. So you have someone who's very strategic, great with team alignment, all these different things, but actually can't solve any of their team's problems because they're not very strong on the building part. They're not very strong on the creator part. Is that what you need? The larger the company, the more people are spending their time doing operating work. So there's either a bigger portion of your builders or creators are doing operating work, or you just have more operator first people. Mm-hmm. Like you have operators that's their primary skill and they're acting as builders or creators. And so that dynamic is really important. Smaller companies really just need builders and creators to kind of do best they can with the operating part, but really excel at the building and creator part. And that's why you end up with that 30 number. You get to 30 marketers and you have a bunch of builders and creators running your team. And there's probably an inefficient, there's probably a ton of inefficiencies there, but it's fine because you're small enough, you can get away with it. It starts to become really problematic when you start to grow in size. And why do you think that is? That may seem like an obvious answer, but I oftentimes feel this is actually the most interesting part. Like, why do you think we actually need so much of that, like builder and creator energy and kind of contribution in those early stages? Because in the early stages, the inefficiency of the team is outweighed by the fact that you're trying to grow momentum behind these digital channels or you're trying, you really need a great brand story. You need your product position to be really crisp. You need great product marketing. You need like all of those things are just the lifeblood of smaller companies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you have the most efficient meeting structure, reporting systems, team alignment, if nothing is growing. And I think builders, creators are the people who make things grow. But the operators, like when you get to a certain company, really that operation work, like operator goes from a nice to have in that kind of one to 30 person team to a must have after that. And I think it becomes a real, like it's a, you know, a point of friction in one to 30, but it's actually a point of, it's a real growth lever mm-hmm. in 30 plus. Like it doesn't get you a ton of additional growth when you're one to 30 because your team is small enough. But when you get a large team, it actually becomes a real core growth lever. Like the more efficient you get, the actual quicker you will grow, the more traction you'll get. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I think a lot of early stage founders are kind of getting trapped in like, oh, this great person from this great, like later stage company, they're so amazing and let's get them on board. And I know a lot of stories, including our own, like where we actually got really excited about talent that was basically, we're operators. And yeah, operators. In our context, it was just simply too early. So really helpful uh, differentiation. Thank you for that. And last but not least, before we switch gears and dig deeper a little bit into your personal story at the end of the combo, I think you also mentioned that um, something that I felt 
is so obvious as well, but I think a lot of people don't do it or probably most of us don't do it often enough. You said to be a better marketing leader, which probably accounts for most leaders out there, start your meeting with how are you doing versus how are the numbers? Can you share more about about why you actually tweeted that? Like what inspired that situation? And also why is that important? How does it kind of like being kind and empathetic with the people you work with and you lead result in, in results actually? Yeah, I, there was a conversation I was having with a marketing leader and they were kind of talking about the, everyone is going to go through difficulties in terms of making their numbers. And I think it's really important. You don't lose sight of the fact that the people on your team are people. And so, yeah, you have to get hyper-focused on the numbers, but always make sure that you start off the meeting with like, how is your team actually doing? If you don't ask that question, you lose out on things that will come back around and haunt you. Like in two to three minutes, like this team member will say, oh, well, really how I'm doing is I'm just totally you know, I'm, I'm just totally, I just don't feel motivated or I'm really having these problems, whatever they may be. And they're not all, I'm not, it's not like you're trying to dig into the personal problems. A lot of it is they are having problems within the company that are not tied to their numbers. Yeah. And so it's really just like, you have to, the more people you manage, like you have to care about the people on your team. You have to really just ask them simple questions. Like, how are you actually doing? And you don't have to ask that each and every day, but you have to, I think, start off some of your meetings with that. Like, let's take a moment and just talk to each other and see how you're doing, how I can help you do better. It's empathetic leadership. I think that people want to work for people and people want to feel connected to their manager in some ways. I don't think you have to be best friends to have a really great work relationship, but you have to care that that person is happy within their role and you have to kind of figure out how you can make things better for them if they are having problems. And why do you think that is so hard? I think one of the people that responded to your tweet was also making a, a fun point around like, oh my God, in my last 20 years, I think I've had one meeting starting like this. Like what, what went wrong there? Why do you think it's so hard for, for managers to, or leaders to ask that question? I think everyone is under pressure. Like the other thing to realize is when people are like complaining about their manager and Hey, this person could do this better and do that better. Like they're under a lot of pressure, right? They also have someone asking them for results and improvements and how they're going to fix things. So they've got their own pressures. And so I think everyone is under pressure. Everyone is trying to do the best job they can. And a lot of that in tech is really tied to measurable actions. And so it's really easy to start off every conversation with, okay, like, how are we doing? How can we do better? And I think it's just trying to shift your mindset that that five minutes at the start of a meeting on how they're doing gets you a ton of, just gets you a happier team, a more productive team. Like people don't want to feel like they're just a chart, like don't want to feel like they're just a metric to you. That's not very inspiring to work for someone who they think that that's all they care about. Yeah, no, definitely. With that, <laughs> uh, switching gears to towards your, your personal experience a little bit, looking back on your career with its ups and downs, what were moments for you where you felt like, oh, wow, this is like really difficult. I don't know how we'll get out of this right now. And like, I'm not really sure whether I will make it here and like not don't really have immediate answers right away. I need to like um, transform into something different in order to conquer this. Like what were the most challenging and difficult moments for you? What did you learn? I think it's always when I start something new. So every kind of two or so years when HubSpot, I take on a new mission, whether that was building, kind of helping to build a direct business, building a product-led business, acquiring the hostel, which is a media company that was really problematic. So I think what happens is you're kind of within your career and people who are ambitious are like, oh, well, I need something new. Mm. And that's something new is always something 
it's a mix of things that you've done, a mix of things that you haven't done. Mm-hmm. Or else it's not interesting. Like it's not interesting to just do the same things in different environments. And so anytime you're doing something new, you have a ton of imposter syndrome. And you always think you're, you know, if you, you kind of think, well, I there's a chance that I could fail at this. There's a chance that I not might not actually be as good as I think I am or as good as other people think I am. And so I think there's just that part of, it's like a mixture of excitement because you're doing something different and you have a lot to learn, but also like, wow, this could, feels like it's going horribly wrong and I don't know what I'm doing. And I think there are the times within your career that you level up the most. Mm-hmm. Like you have these periods of time where you really level up in your careers and then the time where you're kind of getting value from you haven't leveled up. Like you have like, okay, well now I'm actually doing the things that I'm kind of good at. Yeah. And I think that you kind of just want to think about it. You never want to be at either end of those extremes. Like if one of the extremes is really like, I'm under a lot of pressure, I'm trying to learn something new, I'm trying to level myself up. And the other extreme is, well, now I know how to do this thing. I'm really just doing that thing. And it's creating a ton of value. Each end of the kind of- Of the process. Or just yeah, yeah, each end of the process. You never want to be at either end for too long, right? You don't want to be continually under pressure. That's not really good. That's not good for your life, right? That's just like, that's not a good life to have. But you don't want to be too comfortable all the time because you're not learning. Now, I will say- I think there's a point in time within your career that it's, I I saw this on Twitter where someone said, you never want to be too comfortable Mm. for too long. I think there's a part of your career where it's perfectly fine to be comfortable and just live your life. Like I have friends who were really successful and now they've made the choice that they're good at something. They don't want to put themselves under pressure. They have other goals that are not work-related and they're just comfortable. I think that's fine. We should not kind of have this culture of where you should always oh, you need to always be under pressure. You need to always put yourself in a tough environment. That's not how the world should work. And I think it's really important to listen to yourself in that way, right? Like, and I think that's what made the kind of the culture of the last couple of years, like very difficult because it's always been like that kind of like hustle idol of like, hey, if you can hustle harder, you will win the game. So let's just keep doing. And I think you're absolutely right. I think there isn't like really one way of doing this. Like some people will hustle for very long periods of time and be like very happy and fulfilled with that. And like that's their mojo. And some others have like more kind of like fluctuating rhythms where they do this for a few years and then they take it a bit easier. Like I don't think the more people that are successful I meet and the more like journeys I also view, I have to agree with you. Like I think it's really, really depends on what you want in your life at that point and like who is with you and what your other priorities are and things like that. So definitely makes sense. Last but not least, actually kind of similar, like when you look back and you speak to your maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years younger self, (laughs) what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I think the advice I would give myself is that you can, that I think this is really good advice. My, my good friend Kip told me this as well. And it really resonated, which is like for you to win, other people don't have to lose. And when I was early in my career, I thought everything was a competition because I was based in Ireland, trying to build a career as a global marketer for us tech brand. And so it's actually quite hard to do. And you kind of have to think, you kind of think, well, I have to outwork people and be more visible and more kind of like domineering in meetings. And I have to like show people that their ideas are not as good as mine publicly. And that is obviously a terrible thing to do. <laughs> like that, like, and that was one of my big lessons is I believe that for me to like continue to go forward in my career, I had to like be really competitive in everything I did. Every meeting, whether it was with other team members, like whatever it was, I was just competing. And I think you realize at some point that that's not the right way to build your career. I think it happens to a lot of people. I think that, you know, tech is a very competitive industry and people are not doing it 
at a place of malice or they're just trying to trying their best to build their career and try to get some traction within their career. But I think you have to realize that other people don't have to lose for you to win. And actually for you to win, the more you can make others win. The more probable it is that you will win, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, right. Such a good advice. I think it's a perfect way to close the conversation full of like super cool insights and nuggets. And I hope all of you out there enjoyed it as much as I did. And thank you so much, Kieran, for not only the advice, but also for being so open and sharing so much of what you've gone through over the past couple of years. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.